All right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to those of you who are here in uh, the sanctuary. Welcome to those of you who are online. We're glad that you can join with us as we continue to celebrate Advent, the Latin word for arrival, really talking about the arrival of Jesus and the Christmas season. That's what we're doing. And this morning we are looking at a text that predicted his coming over 700 years before Jesus actually came. And so here to read the text. Micah 5, 1 to 5. Now, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, my daughter is going into high school, and we are in that process of beginning applications. Um, and one of the Christian schools uh, that she is applying for has asked her to answer this question. What is the most significant challenge facing teenagers today? And uh, she's written an essay, and her answer is, in short, the need for approval from others which I find fascinating because as we're about to discover, it's not just teenagers that seems to be constructing their identity on the need for approval from others. We're in the season of Advent now, which is from the Latin word for arrival. It, Christians of many traditions, we celebrate Advent as a season. Uh, it anticipates Christmas. It celebrates the arrival into history of God himself in the person of Jesus. If you come from a church tradition like I do, you've probably heard this passage preached before. In fact, if you're like me, you're ready to kind of roll up your eyes, uh, tune out a little bit as a nice hallmarky sermon about Christmas comes upon you. Well, I invite you to consider a fresh look at this passage because this passage is far more challenging than that. If you're a skeptic, this passage challenges you to consider what is actually giving you true peace. And if you're a Christian, even the most mature Christian, this passage challenges us to look ourselves in the mirror and ask, are we really understanding and really following Jesus in a sustained, comprehensibly biblical way? Because this passage written about 720 years BC, written during the latter days of the kings of southern Israel, when the land of southern Israel called Judah was filled with social change, moral decay, cultural corruption, injustice, chaos, and division, this passage says this, relax. God has this. God has you. Because God has a plan for all of history, and that plan is Jesus. Jesus is the plan of God for all of history. Jesus is the peace of God for all people. That 
is our two points. Jesus is God's plan for the world. Jesus is God's peace for the world. Let's look at these two. Firstly, Jesus is God's plan for the world. Now, this idea that anyone has a plan is hard to imagine in our splintered, choice-driven age. Today, everyone values, seeks, and assumes total freedom of choice. Freedom is such a value, it's the air we breathe, and all people, even mature Christians, have begun to adopt this freedom-centric view of life. We think we live self-constructed lives. We buy into the present cultural idea that we are at our most authentic and flourishing when our deepest desires are given free reign into our choices. So we're now expected to choose our identity, our gender, our sex, our inclinations, our attractions, our pronouns, and on and on. And the question is, is all of this choice, all of this self-construction actually resulting in peace? I submit to you, not even close. What has been the result are some of the highest incidences of depression and anxiety ever recorded. In teens alone, anxiety is up 20% in a five-year period alone. Suicides amongst young people have doubled in less than a decade. Politically, we've never been more divided, so split into mutually derisive and hostile camps. There's no peace at all. Why? In the midst of so much apparent choice, why is there so little peace? Isaac Dennison in her classic novel, Out of Africa, puts her finger on it. She says, many people are not aware of any idea of God in the making of them. And sometimes they make us doubt that there has ever been even such an idea. But they have to accept the success, therefore, what others warrant to be success. And they take their happiness and even their own selves at the quotation of the day. They tremble with reason before their fate. Do you hear what she's saying? To self-construct a life is to be hostage to what the world tells you is a properly self-constructed life because you've got nowhere else to look. And in that there is no peace, just a haunting insecurity. And this is where we are. Against this cultural desert of people thirsting for peace, this passage stands out like an oasis of living water for our souls because it says that God has a plan for the whole of history for you, for me, and for us. And that plan centers, flows toward and through and from Jesus Christ, his son. The passage starts with these words, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel. This passage tells Israel to muster her troops for a battle because at this moment the Assyrians are closing in on conquering all of Israel. They are being afflicted. They are about to lose their land and be going into exile. But the, promise, the, the prophet promises something that will happen in the future, that a ruler will come amongst them in the midst of this darkness. 
That ruler will come from Bethlehem, this tiny backwater town, a, 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 an insignificant city in the land that is controlled by the tribe and the ethnic clan of Judah. God is going to use this tiny, insignificant town in this forgotten, weak, poor region of Israel to bring about the most glorious ruler and destiny that the people of God could imagine. The God of all power is going to use the place of much weakness to show perfect glory. And he says, this one, this ruler, shall come forth for me. This ruler is going to come out for the sake of God, not just us. He's going to restore and rule Israel, but he is also, he is going to exalt and magnify the name and the glory and the honor of himself. Do we know who this is? The text gives us some clues. It says his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The Hebrew word here, olam, can mean one of two things. It can mean literally from ancient days, or it can mean from time immemorial, from eternity past almost, as it were. And the original readers probably read from ancient days. Oh, Micah is saying, let's go back to the original king from Judah, David. He's going to be like David. He's going to be the once king, this future king. But in Matthew chapter 2, talking about this verse, it says that in describing the hunt of the wise men for the baby Jesus, quoting this verse they do, and they say that this verse applies to Jesus, who is God the Son come from all eternity into humanity going farther back, the very once and very future king. You see, Micah is telling Israel that God has planned this coming from the very first of the days. He has known about this awful season of weakness, defeat, and exile that they are experiencing, and it is part of his plan. In fact, he tells them in the next verse, verse 3, this weakness will continue for a while. Verse 3 says, therefore he shall give them up, to exile until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, till Jesus is born. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. That's an illusion saying the people of Israel will become bigger than the ethnic Jewish people. The rest of the brothers, the rest of the nations will become part of this people when that one is born. Do you see what's being saying? God is saying this, I got this. All this exile and suffering, all of this division and sin going on in these latter days of the existence of Israel as its own nation, and then a coming 600 plus years of exile, I know this. It's all part of the plan. It's all coming to a glorious fulfillment, a glorious redemption that I have planned since the dawn of time that all the nations would know about Jesus. Jesus is the once and future king that I have built history upon. Men and women, God is in control of every part of history, every action, every decision of human history. God knows and God sees. There are no self-constructed identities. There is only a God-constructed identity and a God-constructed history. And this God, this sovereign God who does everything according to the counsel of his will has decided to shape all of that history which is in his hands 
to shape it into the configuration, into the shape of one person, the glory of the once and future King Jesus Christ. The New Testament gives details about what Micah's prophecy is predicting rather indirectly. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, and God made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to be the head of all things. All of history is pointing toward that headship, that authority. Philippians 2 sheds more light on it. Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form and nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There it is. Men and women, the exaltation of Jesus above every name, the confessing by every tongue that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that is the point of all that is and was and will be. Jesus is the reason the world was created. He was the reason history happened and is happening the way it does now and will in the future. He is not just someone who entered into human history. He entered into the story of himself when he became human. He is its central figure, histories. He is its climax. He is its plot. He is its writer. God has a plan for human history, for the world, for the cosmos, and that plan is Jesus himself. If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, I want you to hear this carefully. Jesus is not just some figure of history that you can casually study and wonder if he really has relevance to your life. You were made for him, as was all of history. Your true identity is found and measured by your relationship to him, no matter how successful you become. No matter how well thought of you become, no matter how significant you are in terms of the world's view of your impact, it means nothing if the actual reason that all of history exists, if the actual reason you exist is to be related to this person and he's a stranger to you. You are way off of where you need to be. So don't take this casually. If you're a Christian, I have a question. Are you aligning yourself with God's plan for the world, the plan for the exalting of the name of Jesus above every other name and the centrality of Jesus in everything? Or are you busy exalting your own name, centering your life on your own kingdom, your own goals, and chasing your own glory? 
Do you see the world through Christocentric eyes where every part of history, every current event, and everything you do and experience, every ebb and flow of your life, of COVID, of this world, is part of the planned drama of redemption and glory of God's beloved Son? Do you need to lift up your eyes from your phone and see the world as it is, God as He is, Christ as He is, and you as you are called to be? Church, Grace Toronto, we are going through a tough season right now. There are some conflicts and challenges, but this is part of God's plan, this season of trials, and God has us. He has us, and he will use this as part of his plan to glorify Jesus. Let us rest in that truth and act out of that rest. Jesus is God's plan for the world. Secondly, he's God's peace for the world. The last couple of verses, four and five, that I'm going to talk about here, talk about Jesus being God's peace. In verse four, the passage describes this coming ruler that Micah says is coming. It says, he shall stand. That, that is a word of contrast. It's meant to differentiate him from the other rulers because they've not stood in the ways of God. They've wandered from the ways of God and chased their own dreams, worshiped their own gods, gone after their own pleasures, built their own kingdoms, and ruined the nations. They wandered from God, but this one will stand with God. He will stand firm in following God's ways. And then the next phrase, and he will shepherd his flock. This is, this is the key phrase probably in this passage. A king shall so love his people that he will shepherd them. Shepherds lead their flocks to safe places. They stand guard over their flocks when predators arise. They stay up at night with their flocks when they're sick and need care. They exhibit this tender love, compassion, and care for their flock. That's what the shepherd will be like. He will do it in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord. He will be incredibly intimately connected to God, uniquely connected, though somehow a human. That's what Micah is saying. And this perfectly describes Jesus Christ, God's Son from before time, the eternal Son, who took upon himself full humanity to become this shepherd, to be among us, to care for us, to lead us, to lead us where? The text says where. It says, they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Here we have this worldwide leader and shepherd whose greatness will spread to the ends of the earth, who will give his people security, who will make them dwell in peace. And then the final summary point of the passage, he shall be their peace. He's our peace. What does that mean? Well, firstly and foundationally, it means Jesus is our peace with God. This is the essential thing. This is the foundational thing. We have been created by God, given an identity by God, a purpose by God. We are called to be in relationship with God, to know Him, to love Him, to trust Him, to obey Him. That is our identity. We cannot escape it. But it is not our reality because we try to escape it. 
We naturally rebel against this kind of life. We want to live our lives independent of him. We want to use him to get what we want from him, but we do not want to submit to him. I was talking to a skeptic fairly recently who'd grown up in the church and said, look, I know Bible verses. I know the gospel. I, I, know, I know there's a God out there. I like Christians. I like the culture they create. I like the love that they give me. I just don't want to submit. I want it all. I want, he, I want what he gives me, but not him. That's not just that skeptic. That's in every human heart. We don't want to submit to his wisdom. We want to follow our own. We don't want to trust in his ways. His ways require us to be too loving, too sacrificial, too giving. We don't want to lean on his love for our sense of who we are. We prefer, as Denison said, to look to others to help construct our sense of who we are. And this puts us squarely at odds with God. By looking for others to construct our sense of self, we shake our fists at the God who says, let me be the foundation of your sense of who you are. Why are we at odds with each other? Because we're at odds with God. You see, this being at odds with God is the root of every other kind of lack of peace. Why are we at odds with each other? Because we fight and scratch and compete to be successful. Because our souls have no sense of security in who we really are. Because we're estranged from the God who made us and defines us. Our identity is insecure, and from that come a thousand corruptions of character and motive as we try and fill that hole in our soul and construct an identity that we cannot. Why are we at odds with our world? Why do we exploit and strip our natural world of its beauty and resources, pollute the oceans and the skies? Because in our mad rush to make something of ourselves, to have others approve of us, we will use anything squander anything, exploit everything, because we're not at peace with God. We're not at peace with ourselves. And so we use the natural world to fill the hole in our soul. And why are we not at peace with ourselves? Because we have no settled sense of being all right. We have no settled sense in our heart of hearts of being approved and loved. We have no center Something is wrong and missing. We are seeking to be significant to matter, but we don't know if we do. We want to be loved, but we don't know if we're loved. Why? Because it's God who supplies that deep sense of love and purpose and meaning. And our heart of hearts knows it, even if our mind doesn't acknowledge it. All of this lack of peace, relational, environmental, social, personal, it comes from the same root. The spiritual lack of peace with God. Our sin has separated us from Him. Our desire to go our own way has made us strangers and alien to the one in whom we are to find our true identity and find our deepest peace. We wandered away from God. And here is the great, great news of Christmas, that God has chased after us while we wandered. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, says Romans 5.8. God in Jesus is the shepherd come to reclaim his wandering sheep. Jesus left the glory and the comfort and the power of his home to come into our broken, restless, evil world to come and find us.
to bring us back to God, to help us find peace with God. He is our great shepherd. And how does this great shepherd who brings us back to God describe it? John chapter 10, these are the words of Jesus himself. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because, here it is again, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. Peace with God through death. Jesus comes to us. He finds us. He reclaims us by dying for us. Isn't that credible? Isn't that crazy? He dies to make a full and final peace with God. Do you hear this? Your sins have made a separation between you and God, and Jesus takes it away. You see, God loves us, even in our wandering and in our fighting and in our rebelling and in our hurting ourselves and others. God loves us. He loves you. And this shepherd claims us as his own by going to a cross. And there on the cross, Jesus, God's eternal beloved son, became, as it were, estranged and alienated from God. He stepped into our shoes. Though he ministered in the strength of the majesty of God and he never disobeyed God even once on the cross, his father, though he loved him, out of love for us, poured out his displeasure that we had incurred. His father poured it out on Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And when that happened, when he allowed Jesus our peace to experience that judgment, that estrangement, that alienation, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt forsaken, a stranger. And silence reigned. And then, a little while later, Jesus himself said, it is finished. The payment that purchased our peace had been supplied by his precious life, by his precious blood. He himself is our peace, and in him, all the peace that you long for, all the peace that you search for, scramble for, fight for, all that peace can be yours. If you're here and you're not a Christian, come to your peace. Come to him who died for you, who gave his life and took it up again. Find rest for your soul in the only place you can find deep soul rest because he's the only one who will give you the foundational peace with God. But if you're here and you're a Christian, what I want you to do is to put down your phone and pick up the gospel. You see, we tend to see the world in fragments. Our phone tells us about these political divisions and, and these divisions culturally over COVID and, and, and sends us to our affinity groups with these hobbies and these interests and it splinters us and diffuses us. And we see the world in fragments and we live there. 
Our faith gets disconnected from our work, from our afflictions, from our troubles. We've allowed the media and social media to shape our thinking about a world that seems chaotic and purposeless, but the gospel says that Jesus should shape all of our thinking about all of life because it's centered in Christ. Therefore, if times are dark for you and you're wondering what God is doing, because you have peace with God, you can see these times of suffering Christocentrically through the lens of Christ. Micah invites us to do it. Paul took up that invitation, Paul the Apostle, and wrote these words in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church. Do you hear him? His sufferings have a Christocentric meaning and purpose. He sees them through the lens of Christ and that gives meaning and purpose to his sufferings. What about if you're anxious? Because you have peace with God, you can enter God's peace by entrusting your circumstances to the God who died and rose for you. Philippians chapter four says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I used to hate this verse. I'm a naturally somewhat anxious person. I struggled with anxiety recently even more so. It has been a very tough year and a half for my family and myself. But knowing God has this and seeing all of life, including the afflictions and brokenness through the life and the lens of Christ and that Christ can and will be honored through this has been an anchor in these storms. And I've been able to give my anxieties and find peace in Him. Thirdly, if times are divided with the peace of Christ in us, we can strive for peace with others. Christ got peace for us by taking sin upon Himself and forgiving us freely. He created an environment of grace where forgiveness is a safe thing to do. I mean, forgiveness is a safe thing to ask for because grace is the center of the relationship. We as people of peace can pursue peace with each other by moving forward in love and grace and compassion, by being willing and vulnerable to ask for forgiveness and being open to granting it. Finally, remember that one day, all of this brokenness, all of this difficulty, all that is wrong will be made right. One day, Jesus, the once and future king, will return. The light momentary afflictions we are experiencing will end and peace Peace in every dimension will break out. Peace within ourselves, peace with others, peace with the world. All that is broken will be made right. All that is darkness will be made light. All that is sad will be made bright. And joy, joy untainted, joy unfiltered and unleashed, joy will take flight. Your destiny is joy, men and women, the joy of God himself, and it shall be yours. Hear our destiny.
from Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with mankind. Verse 3. Verse 1, he will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is our great hope. The once and future king will make total peace. God has this. He has always had this. He has promised to always have this. He has you. He has me. He has us. In Christ, peace is our sure foundation. Joy is our sure destiny. And afflictions are simply the pathway to that joy. The once and future king has come, and in him all who believe in Jesus shall have eternal peace because he is that peace, and we have him. And he has us. Let us pray. Father, I pray that this Christmas we would put down our phones, pick up our Bibles, read our Gospels, and read about the Prince of Peace. We pray that the good shepherd of John chapter 10 would embed himself into our souls and we would know that we are yours and always have been. And history is yours and always has been because history is his and always will be. Help us to align ourselves to this truth and to proclaim in our lives, in our love, in our peace, and in our joy the truth that Jesus is the name above every name. Let us exalt him in our work, in our works, in our words, in our thoughts, in our rest. We thank you and praise you that we are yours and you are ours. You are our peace. Amen.